0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: Hello, old sports, and welcome to episode nine of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well, Dan. A little bit of a wrinkle today to today's show. Yes, Uh,
1: there is. We are live from the northern studio of the Hello Old Sports podcast on the banks of the Hudson, uh, also known as Andrew's Apartment. In fact, we are only about a mile or so from the banks of the Hudson River. And this is our first podcast we are ever recording together, both in the same place and, as we said, in our hometown here in New York, about uh, 90 minutes north of New York City, And for that reason, we thought that Army football would be a good topic for today's show, really for sort of two reasons. First of all, the location and where we're recording from. We thought it would be a good time to talk about something that was very specific to this area that we are in. And then second of all, when this episode airs, it will be early December, just about time for the annual Army-Navy game, something which has a little bit of a different twist this year as a lot of sporting events do. So We thought we would do a little bit of a dive today into the history of the Army-Navy game and to Army football generally.
2: Exactly. So you mentioned we're uh, just not very far away from the east banks of the Hudson River here in Poughkeepsie, just just a little bit away from the the water. And then if we go right across one of the few bridges between here and West Point, you would be able to travel to the west bank of the Hudson River, the famous S-curve, which is where West Point is located, placed there for strategic purposes during the American Revolutionary War, and we will be talking about the Black Knights of the Hudson, which was their unofficial name until the, I believe the 90s, when they finally settled on officially being the Black Knights, the Army Black Knights. They had always been known as the Cadets, but having the... Uh, Black Knights as, a, as an unofficial name, and now they are officially the Army Black Knights. Just as by way of a little bit of context, I am a season ticket holder of Army football. I have been for, this would be the fourth year, had this year taken place as normal. So during that time, growing up here, we always, people went to Army games, and we knew a little bit about Army football, although generally it was always that you go and they lose, and they go 2-10, and 10, but it's still a fun day, and that's changed in recent years, but like my brother said, a very different year as we record this the day after Thanksgiving. The Army-Navy game is scheduled to be played on December the 12th at West Point, which is the first time since 1943. And before that, it was, you know, in the very early 20th century that they played games on the campus sites. And in addition, not only will Army-Navy be at West Point, the Army-Air Force game will be the week after that because they were scheduled to play... In early November, which is their traditional time, and because of coronavirus within the Air Force Academy, it was moved until late December. So, obviously, some outliers that people in twenty, thirty, or even fifty years, when they do an Army football special sports podcast history thing, we'll be talking about. But we'll uh, we'll try to be a little less contemporary in what we're talking about today.
1: Absolutely. So I think we. There are some very specific eras in Army football that are noteworthy and that are worth diving into a little bit. I think it's also probably worth, as we go through here, talking about some of the rather obvious reasons why Army football and Navy football are very different than your average Division One A college football program. But, why don't we start at the beginning? And Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about the early days of the Army football program?
2: Sure. And like you just mentioned and just to lay things out, we're going to spend we're going to save most of the talk about the Army Navy game for the end of the show as kind of its own segment. That doesn't mean we're in some places, it'll be unavoidable. If we're talking about a, a championship army season or something, we'll have to mention oh, and they beat Navy in the last game of the season. But the actual specifics of crucial army-navy games or the tradition around that, we'll save that for the end. But in this case, we do have to talk about the first army football game took place in 1890. It was Army against Navy. The technically the coach, more like a student manager. Of those teams in 1890 and then in 1892 was a guy by the name of Dennis Mikey, who was a cadet at the time. It's spelled M-I-C-H-I-E, and the name rings a bell to a lot of people these days because the stadium at West Point, where all of Army's home games are played, bears his name. It is Mikey Stadium. That first game, Army was beaten 24 to nothing by Navy. It was the only game that Army officially played that year, but that was the beginning of their football and also the beginning of a rivalry that continues to this day.
1: And I think we've talked in the past about how when you look at what football actually was in the 1890s it's not like baseball in the 1890s where sure there are some differences different number of strikes maybe a shorter different distance between the mound and the batter's box football in 1890 is very different even than football 20 to 25 years later exactly
2: really think about when we when you talk about baseball it's like kind of the beauty of baseball is that so little has changed that you tend to focus on the things that have changed because a lot of it looks exactly the same where the positions are and what the players are and how many outs and any. football especially college football not that there was pro football in 1890 but college football has always been very era specific and when you're talking about really anything prior to 1920 it's a barely recognizable game to what we know today but football sort of a natural tie-in to the military academies being such a military-esque game especially back then but when you think about territory and and gaining yards and you know possessions and things like that it's really not hard to see the in addition to just violence which at that point was much more unstructured than it is today it's really not here, hard to see why that would appeal so heavily at first to the cadets and midshipmen at a military academy and later to the brass as a way you know of these military academies as a way to encourage uh discipline. camaraderie and discipline within the
1: schools advance and retreat and 11 players on a football team more so than in any other sport really so All of that ties in with the general military culture idea. Uh, So what else is worth noting from the early days of Army football?
2: So the one thing, and I I know we mentioned, we'll talk about the Army-Navy game later on. Early days, being pre-1900, there was was a Navy player. But in 1893, the Army-Navy game was the first game ever where a football player wore a helmet. Midshipman by the name of Joseph Mason Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S played the uh, Army-Navy game in 1893 in a helmet because he had been told that basically one more blow to the head could kill him. So in order to play in that game and continue his football career, he wore a sort of crude helmet to protect his brain, I guess. Now, who knows how effective that actually was, but it's still a significant first, I believe.
1: Yeah, very interesting. I feel like even with the advances in helmets and technology in this day and age, if a player was told, one more blow to the head and you will likely die, I don't think they would bother to even try and play even with a helmet. Exactly. But different different times in the 1890s.
2: So we're going to skip ahead a little bit. When you talk about the 18, unless you have something to get to, when you talk about the 1890s, if you look, they're playing six to eight games a year doing well but it's really very hard to quantify exactly what some of this means like if you were to just pick a year at random let's say 1897 army they went six one and one and if you were to look at some of these teams they played you wouldn't even necessarily recognize any of them as schools that currently exist let alone having football teams here here were their results in 1897 they played trinity which was in connecticut they played wesleyan which was in connecticut Harvard, Tufts, Yale, Lehigh, Stevens, and then Brown. So lots of Ivy League schools and... Plus Stevens. And Stevens and Trinity in Connecticut that you've never heard of, really, or certainly aren't known these days as football powerhouses. And another thing to sort of point out, especially in the late 19th century and early 20th century, most of the time, for most of those years, they were playing all of their games at home except the Navy game. For a very long time, they were not traveling. They would play all their games at West Point on a place called The Plain, which is still there, but it's basically just one large sort of open flat field that's now sort of like a almost it's a spot on the tour with the statues and things like that. Why wouldn't they travel? I don't know the exact reasons. I think A, was cadets weren't leaving base all that often back then to begin with, mm-hmm. and then B, probably costs were involved in – Worried about mischief-making and things like that. But my, my guess is, for the most part, that it had a lot more to do with keeping, it, keeping all the cadets on the base. It wasn't, you know, football at the time, they were probably getting some special treatment, but it wasn't the special treatment that they would get today, even at a West Point or at a military academy. It was probably like, well, the rest of the men don't get to leave base to, you know, to have fun. You guys don't get to leave to have fun either.
1: And I think that's sort of an interesting – that's sort of an interesting window into what college sports in general was in the early 1900s. The football team was considered no different than the debate team or the choir, that type of thing. It was all just activities for the students outside of the classroom. And so you see it reflected in the extreme there sort of with Army, but really even at the regular – School colleges and universities, it was considered more of a club-type thing and an activity, not something the school would center its entire Mm -hmm. business model around.
2: And and one thing that will come up as we go through this, especially up until the, you know, really from this era we're talking about now until the 1960s, there was at best a frosty relationship often with the brass of the school who were all high-ranking military members and the football program. Yeah how high a profile they wanted the football program to have, how much special treatment they wanted the program to have. It's important to sort of note that even today, especially today, while it's not Alabama or Mississippi or Clemson, and in some ways it's harder because they're also going to these practices, West Point cadets, and I'm assuming midshipmen at Navy and and the cadets at Air Force, do get some special treatment in terms of, being allowed to go off base and stay in a hotel the night before games, even home games, and being allowed to be excused from certain meals that no other cadets, even other athletes, are, are allowed to miss. I'm not making a judgment on that, but sometimes there's sort of this equivalence that, like, oh, and there are, you know, there is still a delineation between the football players at West Point and the regular cadets, just like there
1: is at any other school. Well, they have to do something if mm. they want these Guys, to come play there. They're already at so much of a loss as far as the military commitment and just the general culture. Mm -hmm. You have to give them some level of privilege, or else nobody's going to come to the school.
2: Just as an example, and then we'll we'll go back to the timeline. This this was at the Naval Academy, but it's a a similar thing. I know an issue a few years ago was that the head coach at at Navy had asked the Academy if his players could have their uh, dress code eased a little bit. Classes, not necessarily the the uniform but specifically the shoes he said the fact that they have to wear these tight polished <laughs> dress shoes Jeez. all day was and i don't remember how that was resolved but it's something nobody else has to think about at any other academy or any other college in the country except for really these three one era i wanted to highlight before 1919 is going to be something that's really worth discussing but i do want to touch 1914 through nineteen six or 1914 and 1916 they went nine and zero both of those seasons. They actually in nineteen thirteen went eight and one. So you know, in the lead up just before World War One, some really good teams that went undefeated. Again, tough to quantify. We'll look at the nineteen sixteen team for example. You're not going to see a lot of the powerhouses, and there were powerhouses at the time. It wasn't certainly the schools that you look at now, but they went nine and zero in nineteen sixteen playing. Lebanon Valley, Washington and Lee, Holy Cross, Trinity, Villanova, Maine, Springfield, and then two big ones against Notre Dame and Navy. So nine and zero, but they didn't win a national championship or not one that's recognized today because of the the schedule that they played.
1: And I believe future President Eisenhower is on the team in about that time frame, maybe a little earlier. He was probably in the first decade. Of the 20th century, but there, there's a book out there called Carlisle versus Army, and Eisenhower uh, actually, as a West Point cadet, plays against Jim Thorpe and the Carlisle Indians in an exhibition game. The other thing that's interesting to note, and it probably doesn't necessarily to continue to this day, but the Army Notre Dame rivalry is something that is very prominent for several decades, probably up to some point in the 1950s. And interestingly enough, and maybe we'll get into this a little Mm -hmm. bit later, these Army-Notre Dame games that the Army brass expects to be a home game for Army, they fail to take into account the heavy Irish-Catholic contingent among the population of New York City and the greater New York metropolitan area. So oftentimes these games at Yankee Stadium or wherever it is end up being more like Notre Dame home games, even though Army is the ostensible home team. So a big
2: turning point came in 1919, and it wasn't an immediate turning point on the field, but it was more in the attitude of the school towards football and the ultimate investment of resources in football. And the reason it's also significant is because two of the names involved were much more prominent later on, one in Army football history and one in American history. And that was in 1919, there was a... Cadet at the school, Red Blake, who went on to become the coach years later, and he formed a relationship with the newly incoming commandant of West Point, Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur had been at West Point as a cadet in the early 20th century, was not a football player, was a guy who was small in stature, was kind of a a utility man on the baseball team, but had been a manager on the football team, recognized the value of athletics and specifically football at West Point, So when he came back in the late 19-teens, he took over and a big issue had been they had had a cadet commit suicide in the dorms uh, on New Year's Day. And that was obviously a major thing both for what it was and for the public relations aspect of it. So when MacArthur assumed command of West Point in 19— I'm reading now from a book uh, on the 1958 team called When Saturdays Mattered Most by Mark Beach, but it um, obviously covers Blake's whole tenure at West Point, both as a cadet and then as an assistant coach and going forward. So one of the things that MacArthur did was look to get hazing under control. He formed a committee of cadets to sort of discuss things, and one of the people on the committee was— Read Blake, and it says the relationship between Blake and MacArthur grew even closer as a result of the superintendent's obsession with Army football. Two decades earlier, McCarthy arrived at West Point as a gawky teenager, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then upon his return to West Point as superintendent, MacArthur quickly set about establishing himself as Army's number one football fan. Whenever he could make time in his official schedule, he liked to summon Lieutenant Elmer Oliphant to headquarters for a visit. Olafant was a young assistant coach, but just a few years before, he'd been an All-American. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. MacArthur got inside perspective on the team while Olafant received weekend passes to travel upstate to New York, or to upstate New York, where he played as a semi-professional player in Buffalo. And then it talks about how during the war, this would be World War I, which MacArthur had just returned from, MacArthur had been profoundly impressed by how well athletes among the Army's officer corps had performed in combat compared to non-athletes. And he took note of how greatly enlisted soldiers tended to admire accomplished sportsmen. And he also vigorously promoted varsity sports with the goal of raising the academy's national profile. No longer would Army leave West Point only to play Navy. MacArthur sent his teams out into the world. In 1921, their cadets made their first trip away from West Point to New Haven, Connecticut uh, to face mighty Yale but just obviously an interesting and there's a famous quote from MacArthur that you will still hear at Army games today and is on plaques and he said upon the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that upon other fields on other days will bear the fruits of victory and that is a very famous quote both in West Point West Point athletics and then specifically Army and the Army Navy game and it's you'll often hear about the fields of friendly strife in relation to West Point
1: athletics in general You've been to a lot more games than I have, but MacArthur's legacy is very much sewed into the fabric of what you see on a Saturday at West Point for a football game, whether it's quotes, whether it's Mm. just he is very much alive in the legacy of Army football, especially when you factor in the fact that he didn't actually play on the team.
2: Yeah, and he he left the academy in 1922 to continue his military service. That was All of the, obviously, high-ranking people at West Point are still active-duty military for a long time, up until really the 50s. The coaches were all active-duty military, so they'd rotate after a few years. But MacArthur kept his relationship with West Point and specifically with Blake in this same book later in 58. And remember, this is 1958 now, so everything that's happened with MacArthur has already happened. The campaign in the Pacific in World War II, being fired by Truman. He's really now, in 58, he's set up in a hotel in New York City, kind of living a Life of holding, and elder states, holding right? court and impressing people. And every week he would meet with Blake. They would talk on the phone almost every day, mostly about football. So it wasn't just while he was there. He cared and then left. Even during the war, he was, you know, out while he's fighting in the Pacific, commanding the troops in the Pacific, he was in regular contact with people specifically, Red Blake, about those championship Army teams. So a real turning point there in the 20s, late teens, early 20s, during that brief period where MacArthur really put football and athletics in general into the forefront and the dividends sort of paid off and continued that it was just the expectation that football at West Point is to be regarded as an important part of the school's mission. Absolutely. You mentioned the Army-Notre Dame rivalry, so we'll kind of continue along that path. There's a couple of different eras to it, but the 20s is really the era that it really gets going. Like I mentioned, Army was uh, becoming a higher-profile school in terms of football. They'd had their runs, but also college football was becoming the sort of it thing in the country. Other than baseball, it was the biggest sport. They played for the first time in nineteen in the 19-teens. They actually played pretty much yearly. But in 1920, starting in, yeah, I guess, really every year except 1918, from 1913 to they played really every year until world war till after world war till 1947 from 1913 to 1947 with a couple of exceptions they played every year you know they had some big games mostly at west point notre dame mostly getting the better of them until 1925 when army beat them 27 nothing at yankee stadium and then they kind of rotated wins for the next few years and the reason I'm mostly talking about this era was 1928, November 10th, 1928 at Yankee Stadium was the game where at halftime, with Army in a, with a, holding a small lead, Notre Dame coach Newt Rockne delivered his famous speech, and we actually talked about this guy in our 1920 sports episode, the non-baseball episode. We talked about George Gipp, who had passed away in the 1920 at the end of the 1920 season, in that. Halftime locker room. Eight years later was when Newt Rockney delivered the famous "Win One for the Gipper" speech, where they then went out and defeated Army at Yankee Stadium. I believe twelve to six was the score in nineteen twenty-eight.
1: It's amazing what the legacy of is that you don't realize of college football in the New York City area in that time period. You think of college football in these days as a very much a southern. And then a Midwestern phenomenon, and then I guess third would probably be the West Coast. There's you know California, mm. Oregon, Washington even. The Northeast is probably the part of the country that is the least associated with college football. And then if you take it even further, New York City is probably the part of the Northeast that's the least associated with college football because you still have Boston College you have Penn State obviously Pitt,
2: if you consider Pittsburgh and DC area
1: has got Maryland the Virginia
2: teams are sort of related if you were to ask people i mean really the football the program that's even moderately a big time program in new york closest to new york city would be the rutgers who always stinks syracuse who's not much better and is still several hours from new york St. John's and Seton Hall don't have football teams, or if they do, they're not big-time football teams. I don't think either of them have them anymore. Stony Brook on Long Island is not going to move the needle. West Point, Marist- big 2-10. You know, it's just—you're it's. You're right. It is probably the low point of college football relevancy in the country is New York City
1: and the New York City area. Absolutely. But as we're learning, it wasn't always that way. So— uh, we, we talked about Red Blake, and he obviously he has a very long and storied career. Did you want to talk a little bit about him and then maybe segue into the 40s a little bit?
2: Absolutely. So while we're talking about these teams in the 20s and stuff, they're putting up good years for the most part, winning records overall, coaches again changing kind of yearly, Biff Jones, Ralph Sass, Gar Davidson, William Wood. And then in 1941, Red Blake takes over. He had been an assistant at West Point. It's interesting to note his military career was actually over very quickly. He, after he graduated from West Point, it was, you know, in the early 20s, and I think he did some time basically being like a rancher for the military in Texas or somewhere in the West Coast, or somewhere in the the West, and basically as soon as his career, you know, he was able to, left the military, you know, became a football coach. After he realized he was not going to get the head coaching job at West Point, went to, I believe it was Dartmouth and... Had some good years as the coach there and was finally brought back to West Point in 1941 to take over for a team that had gone 1-7-1 the year before and would hold that job for 18 years, which was at the time, you know, again, nobody really had the job for more than a couple of years at a time and saw what is really unquestionably the greatest era of Army football ever, specifically from 1944 to 1946. But there were also some other excellent teams in that era. But Blake, having been there for three years, would you want to uh, introduce us to the era that started with 1944?
1: So it's really led by Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside. Mr. Inside is Doc Blanchard and Mr. Outside is Glenn Davis. And these are two running backs who join the team. I, I don't know if they joined the same year, but by 44, they're both on the team and then they lead army to an unprecedented three national championships in a row 44 45 and 46 the
2: 46 one is disputed by notre dame but yes unquestionably in 44 and 45 and in 46 they have at least a claim to it
3: home of the greatest football machine ever assembled is west Point's famed mikey stadium many a football reporter including yours truly bill stern faced with a job of choosing an All-American, says, Brother, just give me those cadets. They're all, all Americans. Which is pretty much the truth and no great mystery, particularly when you consider Army's coaching staff. Beaver Bevan, who trains the cadets to the peak of physical perfection. End coach, Stu Holcomb, one of the finest wing mentors in football. Head coach, Red Blake. The way the colonel's unbeaten teams play speaks for his football greatness. Andy Gustafson. Coach of the running is blocking his backfield that ever wore cleats. Line coach Herman Hickman, who schools speed and savvy into the Army forward wall. Assistant coach Jabo Jablonski in the Gridiron Hall of Fame is both player and coach. Now, that great Army team. N, Hank Polberg, fast downfield under punts and passes, a demon on defense. Tackle, Al Nimitz, slashing, hard charging, fast, smart on offense and defense. Guard, Art Jarametta. Pulled out of the line to lead Army offense. Center, Hug Fusen, one of Army's best all-around gritters. He doubles as halfback. Guard, team captain, Johnny Green, also cadet captain. Steady, brilliant, and inspiring leader. Tackle, Tex Colder, potentially the finest tackle in collegiate football. End, Dick Pitzer, great diagnoser of plays and a dead-eye pass catcher. Halfback, Shorty McWilliams, a slam-bang blocker, a speedy ball carrier. Quarterback, Arnold Tucker. Probably the best signal caller operating out of a T formation. Fullback, guess who? Uh Ah, right the first time. The one and only Doc Blanchard. Fast, powerful, smart. Everybody's All-American. Along with halfback Glenn Davis, considered by many as the finest change of pace runner the game ever saw. There's no room on Coach Blake's team for prima donnas. Great as they all are individually and collectively, Red's formula calls for full-time football from every man. Let's take a gander at what makes the Cadets click.
2: So 44 in um, Blanchard's high, or excuse me, it was 40, so 44 and 45, they clearly won. 45 and 46 were the two Heisman years. And the interesting thing is you look at their numbers each of those years, and they both had a case each year to have been, have been better than the other one. So in 45, the year that Blanchard wins the Heisman, he's got 101 carries for 722 yards and 16 touchdowns. Meanwhile, Davis has 85 carries for 930 yards and 15 touchdowns. So really Davis had more yards that year than Blanchard did. And then the next year in 46 when Davis wins the Heisman Trophy, he has 712 yards and Blanchard has 613. So very similar numbers as well. And over that period of time, you know, 9 and 0 in 45 9-0 in forty four, and then in forty six. the reason there's that dispute is they went 9-0 in 1946 with their one non-victory having been a tie against those same Notre Dame fighting Irish at Yankee Stadium again in forty six. I believe it was. A 0-0 tie in what was one of the games of the century, I'm sure it was called.
1: Davis is tackled on the final play of the game by Johnny Lujak of Notre Dame Lujak, who in addition to being a defensive player is also the Notre Dame quarterback and the 1947 Heisman Trophy winner. It's also worth noting that Davis and Blanchard would occasionally only play half of the game because Red Blake had this habit uh, that some other coaches had, but Blake was well-known for it, was somebody who would— he would basically have platoons, but these platoons were not offense and defense— These platoons were one group of 11 would play the whole first quarter and then another one would go in for the second and then the original would go back in for the third. He would waver from this from time to time, but by and large, he uses this system. So it's really worth noting that these two amass some of these statistics despite at times only playing playing half of the offensive snaps, and I think that might account for some of the carry numbers that you have there.
2: And also remember, when they're playing half of the offensive snaps, they're playing half of the defensive snaps too. The rules fluctuate a little as the years go on, but college football did not have free substitutions until the 60s. So basically, like in this book I'm reading on the 58 team, I know the rules from then, but they were largely the same in the 40s. You could, If you took a guy out during a quarter, he could not return to play until the next quarter. So what would happen a lot would be You know, you'd have your starting offense, specifically your quarterback, who'd have to then play safety. Or, you know, usually you'd keep him as far away from making tackles as he had
1: to. And getting blocked.
2: And getting blocked. So what you would do is, if you started with the ball, maybe you'd you'd leave your quarterback in for a drive. You'd get through one defensive drive with him in there at safety. Then you'd have him, you know, have the ball on the second offensive drive. And then if there were five minutes left in the quarter, you'd take him out. For the second defensive series, which means if you went back on offense that quarter, he wasn't coming back in until the second quarter. So you'd continue to have those sort of things. So like we said, talking about the 1890s, we're now even talking about the 40s, and it's not a recognizable thing. We think of football, especially because pro football went to free substitution so early that we don't realize that this late, it was still—that's why those numbers seem so kind of off-kilter. 504
1: points— For Army in the 1944 season versus only 35 points given up. They defeat Navy for the 1944 National Championship. They win the Army-Navy game, which entitles them to the National Championship. It's, I believe, the only Army-Navy game that's ever played for a National Championship. Army and Navy are 1-2 that year. It is worth noting that there are some advantages that the military academies have in the recruiting of players during this time period.
2: And, and during World War I as well, but specifically during World War II also.
1: And there are obviously, as there always are with these type of roles, there are all sorts of minutia that you can get into. But the sort of upshot is it – the upshot is basically that if you enroll in one of these military academies – you will not be drafted until your class graduates. And also, you will then enter the military service as an officer as opposed to as just an enlisted soldier. And so in sort of an ironic twist, young men often use enrollment into one of the military academies as a way to stall military service with the hope that by the time four years is up, that the war will be over and they'll enter relatively less dangerous military service. The other thing that's worth noting is that during this same time period, Army and Navy are able to have players join their teams, already played four years in college football, so... They enjoy that recruiting advantage as well. So
2: that was what happened with Red Blake in World War One. You know, think about him as Mister Army Football, one of the most important people in the history of, of Army Football. He had played, I think, it was three years at Miami of Ohio, and then was able to go to West Point for two years during World War One. And for a lot of these people, think about Red Blake graduated in nineteen nineteen, was able to that get out
1: of that World War that, that tactic worked absolutely. Um, So it is the golden age of Army football, but I think it definitely does come with a big asterisk. So if you're ever having a conversation with somebody and they say, oh, well, there were days when the military academies were competitive, if not dominant, in college football, there's a lot more to that story than you might realize as far as why they were able to be so dominant. Just a couple quick things. Davis and Blanchard, once their class graduates, they have to complete their military service. Blanchard never makes it to the NFL, but Davis does actually play two years in 1950 and 1951. He plays with one of the better teams of the era, and that's the LA Rams in 50 and 51. He makes the Pro Bowl, actually, as a halfback in nineteen fifty on a team with Elroy Hirsch and Tom Fears and the two Hall of Fame quarterbacks of Norm Ben Brocklin and Sonny Jurgens. And so part of not only these great army teams, but at least for a couple years, sort of the great LA Rams, high powered offense of the early nineteen fifties, he retires after the nineteen fifty one season because of a lingering knee injury. That he had obtained a few years previous while filming a movie that starred himself and Doc Blanchard about their time as Army football players, and if you give me a minute, I can look up the name. But um, sure, it was it was not a football injury. It was a lingering injury from a movie that ended the career of. Mr outside Glenn Davis but not before a couple of years as a somewhat of a star with the Rams so of the-
2: so zooming ahead a little while Glenn Davis was uh, playing his brief career with the Los Angeles Rams you mentioned 1951 and that brings us to our next very important point in army football history and this was a, a scandal it was known as they it was known as passing the poop which is what's which is going to come up a lot but that was what the scandal was called. So in August of 1951, There was an article in the New York Times, the title of which was West Point ousts 90 cadets for cheating in the classroom, football players involved, written by Arthur Daly, the famous uh, New York Times sports columnist. It is a stark, sickening reality. 90 West Point cadets, perhaps half of them athletes, face expulsion for violating the honor code. And the honor code is another thing where if you hear anything about military academy, specifically West Point, the wording of it is something along the lines of a cadet will never lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate anyone who does. And basically what it says is, obviously, if you do anything against the rules, you've obviously broken them. But also, if you know about it and allow it to go on or don't take it through the official channels, you're considered just as guilty. Which, in a military school, you can understand why that's important. So, I'm going to read directly from the, the 58 book again. It says... The cheating that precipitated the expulsions involved a ring of cadets that had been formed to pass along the questions and answers to daily quizzes and midterm reviews. It first came to attention of the Academy's administration in April of 51, reported by a member of the swim team who had refused an offer to join. The scheme was simple. Relying on the honor code, professors gave the same daily writs, quizzes, to every class and administered them without a proctor. It was an irresistible temptation." Members of the ring who took a quiz in the early period would pass along the questions known as passing the poop in the slang of the ring members to cadets who were to take the same writ in a later class. If time permitted, smarter members of the ring would also work out the answers and pass them along the The practice, according to the findings of the Academy's investigation dated back to at least 1947. Um, A witness in the inquiry said a ring had been started by football players for football players One of the players involved in it was a cadet on the football team named Bob Blake, who was summarily expelled from the school, along with all of the other players, was Red Blake's son. And I think we need to just sort of underscore, A, how big a scandal this was, really that there was any kind of a scandal with West Point football, and B, that... How close it came to Red Blake either being fired or being forced to resign, not necessarily because his son was involved, but because this had gone on under his watch.
1: The movie was called The Spirit of West Point, uh, just for anybody who was curious. I, one of the other players who was implicated in the scandal was a player by the name of Ray Malavasi, who was later to, I don't know, he went and played, he finished up his career somewhere else, and then eventually was the head coach of the Rams in the late 1970s, was the coach when they went to the Super Bowl in 78 against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So another noteworthy name that gets tripped up in that scandal. It's an interesting time period because it's right around the time of the CCNY point shaving scandal mm-hmm. in basketball in sort of the same general metropolitan area. So the previously viewed, um, th- I think there was a, an idea that college sports was this pure amateur endeavor of clean cut American boys going out there and doing their best for their alma mater and even more so the case in the in West Point where you're talking about not just the college but sort of the pride of the country mm. and its army as a whole coming off uh, just a few years after World War II. So this really does shake the entire – Campus, not just the football program.
2: Exactly, like like you said, it's a couple years after World War II. Blanchard and Davis and the Heisman trophies, and you know Eisenhower's about to be the president. Everybody knows that's going to happen. He's a famous West Point man. To circle back to Blake's role in this, players did go to him right as the story broke. He sent them to the Commandant's office. He told them to follow the rules and and you know self-report and you know knowing what the consequences was that was going to be, but. Just as I was reading this section, circling back to sort of the contention—this this ties a few things up nicely—the tension between—even a guy like Red Blake with the administration of the school. And it talks about the, the open recruitment, which is what they called it during World War One and World War Two. It said Blake was aware that not everyone at West Point held Army football in high esteem. He knew ordering his players to the Commandant's office. He was sending them into the Lions' dead. And then it says— Harkins and his coterie openly sneered at Blake's public persona. In their opinion, Blake was a draft dodger who had gone to West Point as a young man to play two more years of football rather than fight for his country in the First World War. And had assumed the rank of colonel during the second only because he demanded status equal to the Navy's coach, who usually held the rank of commander. Now his power far outseated his position. And they felt he was allowing players to openly flout academy directives at the same time they were being indulged with special privileges. So this was a monumental thing, you know, sort of to the modern eye and thinking about modern schools. It's like, well, yeah, guys told people what the test questions were going to be. But in the time and also in the place and who was involved, it's it was monumental to the
1: country. The other thing that's going on in Army football in the early 1950s is Vince Lombardi is an assistant coach with the Black Knights, with the Army football team, and Lombardi, for the rest of his life, would always hold Red Blake in great esteem. Lombardi lasts with Army, I believe, for about five or six years.
2: 49 to 53, he was there. So he was there during this, during the scandal.
1: He was. And sort of he then leaves to go to the Giants and then later to the Packers. But at, during this same time period, Lombardi is getting his start as uh, I think he'd been an assistant at Fordham, his own alma mater, alma mater previous to that. But he, it's always sort of been said that Lombardi really learns to coach and learns a lot of his ideas about discipline and football and how the two go together under Red Blake. And
2: one thing that I was gonna mention later, but so you talk about uh you talk about Lombardi at West Point as an assistant from forty nine to fifty-three. Well, about fifteen years later, while Vince Lombardi was winning Super Bowls at the end of his run with the Green Bay Packers, there was another assistant at West Point on the football team who mentioned that one of the things he did, you know, on Sundays after they played on Saturday was he would on campus go to another coach's house and watch a lot of the Green Bay Packer games, at least the ones that were on TV at the time. And sort of learned a lot and really admired those Packer teams. And that coach, who also spent four years at West Point before going on to other things, was Bill Parcells.
1: That's right. That's right.
2: So just kind of an interesting, if you read about, if you read his most recent autobiography, he talks about how he would go and, and watch the Packer games on Sundays, which was like really their only time off, and, and really admire, you know, the end, it was the end of that run. But both guys from the same kind of general area and, you know, both obviously had quite a bit of success in the NFL.
1: Another assistant who serves under Blake is Sid Gilman, who goes on to be sort of an offensive guru for the San Diego Chargers, wins a couple of AFL titles in the early days of the AFL. So a lot of – and you also you see it in basketball later on with Bobby Knight, Mike Krzyzewski, a lot of of coaches who you might not necessarily think of as being associated with Army were at some point early on in their careers –
2: So let's talk about the last great – the last season Red Blake was there, the last great Army team in terms of this national of a profile, and that was 1958, and the book I've been quoting from a lot was called When Saturdays Mattered Most about the 1958 Army team. And the reason it's called When Saturdays Mattered Most is when you think about The end of that year, the year 1958, was the Giants-Colts NFL Championship game, the greatest game ever played, which really vaulted the NFL into the stratosphere. And perhaps more than anywhere else, just sort of in general, the service academies were really—perhaps nobody was hurt more by the rise of the NFL than the service academies because, you know, prior to this, some guys went on and played pro football— and you could make some money doing it, especially in the forties and fifties compared to the teens or the twenties, but you didn't necessarily go play big time college football with your only goal being to play in the NFL. Now, you know, from the fifth the late fifties on, if you were an all American class caliber recruit from high school, you had your eyes on the NFL before you even picked a college. So knowing oh, well, if I go play here, I have to go into the military for five years. Even if you're not necessarily worried about the dangers of the military or the war, you know, a war that might be going on, you know you're not going to the NFL, at least not right away. So where in the past it might have been seen in the 20s and 30s and 40s even as like, hey, I'm guaranteed a job when I graduate from this college. Now it's like, well, I know I'm not going to the NFL. So again, lots of factors for why Army's not winning national championships these days. But that's something that bears mentioning.
1: Yeah, the, really the only player from a service academy that I can think of that's gone on to any sort of stardom in or any sort of meaningful career, for that matter, in sort of the post-AFL-NFL merger era is Roger Staubach. I don't know if there's others. That, who's the lineman for the Steelers right now?
2: Ali Villanueva. Yeah. Um, and that's, this is sort of zooming to the end, but they do— there's been some back and forth where that that rule was lifted and they allowed, because they figured there was such a small number of guys who go from these service academy teams to play professional sports that they agreed to sort of waive your immediate military service. You still have to fulfill your commitment and they kind of have you do it in off seasons and instead of going right to active duty and then into the reserves, they kind of have you go into the reserves first. But you're talking single digit guys. Most of the time that digit is zero each year. So they've kind of, they had allowed that rule then sort of reversed course in the last few years and said no you have to immediately fulfill your military service and now they're sort of they've re-reversed themselves and are back to hey if you are a player and you play at West Point or the Naval Academy or Air Force and you're good enough to get a contract with a professional sports team go ahead and do it. And the reason for that is PR. They know that it's a good PR to have guys who are technically active duty military you know playing in the NFL every week. So Back to the 58 team itself. This is Red Blake's last year. Hadn't been announced ahead of time or anything like that, but what this year is known for is what's called the lonely end. And this was where Red Blake had run a very traditional offense for years, and going into this season in 58, he decided to totally throw his playbook out the window and came up with an offense where he would have one receiver was a guy named Bill Carpenter who usually filled this role was known as the lonely end he was split way out wide he wouldn't even run back into the huddle they i guess after the first game or after the first quarter of the first game when they got a penalty the referees told that said that he had to come back within the numbers on each play but he was spread so far out for the time that they would they didn't want him wasting that much energy running back and forth to the huddle. So a totally different offense. Um they threw the ball a lot more than they certainly did back then. You know, the numbers don't blow you away, but they threw the ball, you know, over two hundred times that year, it looks like, or or close to two hundred times in a in a nine game season. So that's twenty times plus a game for Army football in nineteen fifty eight is pretty remarkable. Joe Caldwell was their primary quarterback, but The real star of the team was Pete Dawkins, who was the Heisman Trophy winner in 1958. Wasn't their leading rusher. Only had 428 rushing yards, but also had 494 receiving yards, 11 total touchdowns. Bob Anderson was their leading rusher. The Army team was ranked as high as number one that year. They... At beaten Notre Dame. It was the first time they played Notre Dame in about 11 years because that rivalry got so heated and sort of became a sideshow that the schools both decided to end it. They did beat Notre Dame. They were number three. Notre Dame was number four when they played in October. Army won, which catapulted them up to number one, where they stayed for a couple of weeks. And in late October of 58, they went to Pittsburgh to play Pitt. They tied that game 14-14, to 14, which knocked them down in the rankings they won the rest of their games, including a victory over Navy, 22-6. to 6, And they very likely could have won a national championship had they gone to the bowl they were invited to, which I believe was the Rose Bowl. Army, much like Notre Dame back then, and a lot of schools, and there were a lot less bowls back then, but would not play in bowls. I don't think Army played in their first bowl game until 1984 or 83, sometime in the early 80s. Now, this, for most of the 60s and 70s, it was a moot point. Wasn't, Yeah. They were not invited to any—they would not have been invited to any bowls. But a lot of schools, I know Army's stance was always, well, Navy is our bowl game. But had they played in a bowl game that year and won it convincingly, may have won a national championship. Instead, they finished three. Dawkins wins the Heisman Trophy. And then at the end of the year, Blake announces his retirement.
1: So a few things there. First of all, Dawkins ends up going on to a, first of all, military career and then later a business career. And actually in, I think it's 1988, runs unsuccessfully for the Senate.
2: And as, I believe if you read about that, it was it was a notably nasty campaign. I remember reading about that.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the um, charges was he didn't really have many ties to the state he was running in, which was New Jersey. But he's not elected to the Senate. He's defeated – in his senate race i was looking yeah you were right the first bowl game for army was not until 1984 which is interesting because navy seems to have played in them at least on a semi-regular basis a lot several decades earlier so i don't know what the reason for that was but army waits all the way until 1984 and that's something that you would just never see let alone a service academy maybe you might see it but any other school turning down not just a bowl game but a chance to win a national championship, that's just unheard of in this day and age.
2: Yeah, I mean from and we're gonna talk about sort of the down points here, but as I look and again, back then when six and five didn't get you into a bowl game, the last couple of years they probably would have even had any shot at a bowl were the late sixties. After that they were, you know, mostly below five hundred or just a game over until the early eighties. So who knows how early they would have accepted a bowl game, but we know it wasn't in nineteen fifty eight. That was actually when I went to the Army spring game a few years ago. There was somebody down on the field, and you could tell he was getting a lot of attention. Like, as soon as he came onto the field, it was a guy dressed nicely with silver hair and a suit. And as soon as he came onto the field, the head coach, Jeff Munkin, kind of ran over to talk to him. And you're at an Army game or a spring game. You expect there's going to be, like, luminaries there or that there might be. But the difference with this guy is he wasn't wearing a military uniform. So I was like, oh, I wonder who that is. And then I found out later via the Army website that it was Pete Dawkins Mm -hmm. was there. So to see a guy who had won the Heisman Trophy 60 years before that at the spring game was pretty neat.
1: It is, and at the risk of sounding morbid, the chances that Army is ever going to have another Heisman Trophy winner is probably pretty slim. So he is, Mm -hmm. from the point of view of this football program, very much sort of a living treasure in that he will be the last army football player ever to win a Heisman Trophy in all likelihood.
2: So we're going to zoom through a little bit of the rest of this until the modern era now. But so after Red Blake retires, Dale Hall takes over. And from the late 50s through the late 60s, they're mostly winning seasons. You know, there's a a couple of eight and two teams in 66 and 67, which would have been when Parcells was there under a coach named Thomas Cahill. So again, they're, they're nowhere near like, Finishing in the rankings any year, they're playing light schedules, but they are still putting up winning records. And then in 1969, it was when it really things start to make a turn. They finished with a losing record in 69. In 70, they're one nine and one, and then couple of couple of good years right over 500 after that. And then the era begins. They're 0 and 10 in 1973, and then do not finish with a winning record. They finished with a winning record in 1977, but from 1969 until 1981, 82, 83, most under 500 all but three years. Most of those years, you're looking at two and nine, three and seven, that kind of thing. So, really, the first big fall. And just one thing I wanted to point out from that era 1979, they they go two, eight, and one. The head coach of that team is the only coach for one year was Lou Saban, Nick Saban's father. I'm not sure what Nick Saban's age was at the time, but his one year as head coach at West Point was 1979.
1: And I believe Lou Saban played in the NFL for the Browns in the 40s and 50s under Paul Brown. So just, oh, a, just sort of a side note there.
2: So then we get to the 80s where the head coach is Jim Young, and again, we're, we're talking about the first bowl games they played in, they played in actually three bowl games in five years. In 84, they went eight and three. In 85, they went nine and three, actually entered the rankings at one point in 85, although they didn't stay there. Played in the Cherry Bowl and then the Peach Bowl. And then in 88, they went to the Sun Bowl at nine and three. They did lose that game. That's three bowls in five years, their first three bowls. And then once again... Couple of good years in the late '80s, '88 or '89, '90, just over 500. Young leaves, and Bob Sutton takes over, and you get to a run here in the '90s with one exception, which we'll talk about, where they're either below 500, you know, just under 500. Then in '96 was, I talk called the '58 team, the last great Army team. If we had done this five years ago. We'd be saying the 96 team was the last even decent Army team.
1: And I remember that. That prior to your getting season tickets, that was the last time they'd been to a game. And they, they started the season something like 7-0 and or something like that. It was a decent year for them. Yep, they
2: finished 10-2. and They actually finished ranked. They were ranked 25th. They got as high as 22nd at one point in the year. They were, let's see what their record was. They Yeah, they won 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. They actually were 9-0. and before they went and they were ranked 22nd and then they went to Syracuse and they got killed then they beat Navy I believe that game was at, at uh, Giant Stadium they beat Navy and then they went to the bowl game they played against Auburn and they lost by 3 at the Independence Bowl in Shreveport, Louisiana. So 10 and 2, 10 and 1 in the regular season. Only loss was to a, a team that was ranked higher than them. Really good year. Started off with that great 9 and 0 season. But it just wasn't sustainable. From 1997 to 2009, they were no better than four and seven. Any of those years, their best season was four and seven. In 1998, they made what is seen as a catastrophic mistake going forward. All of these years up until this point, they're an independent. Mm-hmm. And obviously, tons of schools were independents. But as conferences became a bigger and bigger deal, more teams joined conferences. In 1998, Army makes the decision, or they probably made the decision off of the strength of the 96 season. But in 98, they join the they join Conference USA. It's an unmitigated disaster for them. It comes at a time when they're already, you know, trending in the wrong direction, but the years they're in Conference USA, which is 98 through 04, three and eight, three and eight, one in ten, three and eight, one in eleven, 2003, they became the first team in college football history to go 0 and 13 because they played Hawaii, so they were allowed to play a 13th game, and then 2 and 9 in 04 before they went back to being an independent. So now, I guess the big issue too, because I've heard people talk about this, not only were they bad and it didn't help them at that time to not be able to handpick some of their games, but also, and the same is true now. Think about lower conferences as it relates to TV. Army loves to play Saturdays at noon, Saturdays at 3.30. You know, they they have their routines for everything. Suddenly, Conference USA is telling them, well, ESPN wants you to play on Thursday night. ESPN wants you to play on, you know, Wednesday. And that's really... So now the one thing Army's always had going for it, which is people like going to the games, even if the team stinks.
1: Because it's a whole atmosphere of the day and the... Skydivers bring the game ball down and all that stuff, and now you lose a lot of that.
2: Exactly. So they backed off of that. Didn't really change their trajectory. They're just burning through coaches. After Bob Sutton left, it was Todd Berry. Todd Berry's years were one and ten, three and eight, one and eleven, zero and seven. So Todd Berry was fired in the middle of his fourth season, but he was one and ten, three and eight, one and eleven, and zero and six. Then they bring in Bobby Ross, the former Lions coach, and he takes over for a couple of years.
1: Bobby Ross was the former Chargers, Chargers coach. coach.
2: That's right. He had taken him to a, to a Super Bowl. But he doesn't do any better. Stan Brock, Rich Ellerson. There's one sort of brief, decent season in 2010. They go 7-6. and six, They get to a bowl game. It's one of the lower bowl games again. Back in the time when we're in the era now where 500 gets you a bowl game falls right off the cliff, and then in 2014, Jeff Munkin, their current coach, takes over, and it's really been a renaissance in Army football. Again, they're not going to go back to winning back-to-back Heisman trophies and back-to-back national championships. If they can win, I always say, if they can make a bowl game a little more than half the time, and if bottoming out is a year where they go 5-8 and eight, instead of three straight years where they go 1-12, and 12, that's kind of the... Um, what I think the standard ought to be, but since Monken has taken over, they his first year they were four and eight, but or then second year two and ten, but then since then eight and five, ten and three, eleven and two, had an off year last year at five and eight. And now this year they're seven and two, finished as high as nineteenth in the 2018 rankings, had a like a 14 game straight home winning streak. Army football is basically at the highest point it's been sustained probably since the early
1: 80s at this point. Do you think that there's anything that Munkin has done differently to make the program more competitive? Or do you think there maybe are just other factors at play? I think he has
2: done things differently, but it's hard to – I don't know that I can enumerate them. Okay. Um, I think, A, he's I, – i yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he certainly seems like the right guy to coach an Army team, but some of these other guys probably did as well. I think he's able to – again, if your Army – You're recruiting against either the Ivy Leagues or the other military academies. What you need to be able to do is win recruits against the other military academies. You want to hear, oh, this guy was considering Navy and Air Force and picked Army. You're not going to hear he was considering Florida State and picked Army. And you're hearing more of that. And I think also he's got a firm commitment to the triple option offense, which Army's traditionally run, but they've experimented a little with getting away from it. But I think he's a a firm believer in that and... And then strategic scheduling is important for a school like Army as an independent. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's not unfair to say if your Army. And, I mean, this will be able to segue nicely from the big thing Jeff Munkin's done. But, you know, you want to strategically schedule. You know you're going to have your other military academies. And you know you're going to want maybe one or two higher-profile games. But other than that, they play a lot of MAC teams, a lot of Conference USA teams. And the fact is if Army can go 9-3 and three while playing a weaker schedule, it's better than if they play a— You know a nationally prominent schedule and go four and eight.
1: One of my favorite sports authors is John Feinstein, who's written a number of really good sports books. And the uh, his most famous is a season on the brink, where he followed around Bobby Knight and the Indiana basketball team for an entire season in the mid 1980s. He in the 90s wrote a book called A Civil War which is the story of a single season of army and navy football and culminating with the army navy game and one of the points he makes in that book which i had never really thought of but in most other programs a player has a lot of reasons not to want to leave the football team the player at penn state or miami if they leave leave the football team chances are they're going to lose their scholarship and that means they're leaving college as well at the service academies everybody is already on a full government scholarship so the players if a player leaves the football team they're just getting extra hours back in their day for sleeping and or studying now i know as you said there are some concessions Mm -hmm. that are made but i don't think anybody would deny that a football player at a service academy faces a heavier time commitment than even the already heavy time commitment that players not on the teams face. And so what you sort of end up with is you end up with players who really, really want to be on the football team.
2: And and the other thing, too, is if you're at West Point—and by the way, you mentioned John Feinstein still writes a weekly column on the Army website after every game. I did not know that. I mean, he did as of last year. I haven't checked it this year, but it's called Feinstein's Findings, and he writes after, like, each game. He's obviously not doing it because he has to. You know, he's obviously a writer of much higher prominence. But the other thing, too, like you mentioned, so every cadet at West Point has to play a sport every season. Now if you're on the varsity football team, uh, you know, they don't make you play intramural softball in the spring, mm-hmm. but whether it's varsity or club or intramural, so if it's club, you might play other schools club teams around the area. Every person has to be on some sort of athletic team every season. And if you're on varsity, I believe your off-season training counts for that. So it's not like, yeah, you just, oh, I don't I'm not on the football team anymore, so I'm going to stay at home. The way it works when you're at Army and I'm assuming the same as it uh, is at Navy, you are free to leave after, up until you've completed your second year, you are free to leave like any other athlete or any other student. No penalty, you can leave. You can transfer, whatever. What happens at the beginning of your junior year? I believe that that every grade at West Point has its own nickname. So the, the seniors are the firsties, the freshmen are the plebes. I get mixed up on which one are the yearlings and which one are the cows, but I believe the juniors are the cows. The start of your junior year, you sign a commitment. They usually have a ceremony where you sign, like, one long piece of paper, but then you individually sign a commitment. And what you're doing there is you are saying you are committing to finish your school and then your military service. So you can still leave, and you can leave even if you graduate. You can leave, but what happens if you don't fulfill your military service? They send you a bill. For yeah. for your four years of schooling, which ain't cheap. So that's where but if you but if yeah, if you're a sophomore and at the end of your sophomore year you say, you know what, military's not working for me, the school's not working for me, you can leave like any other school. But you can – also there's no red shirting, so you don't get to if you get injured or if you have another year of eligibility for some reason, the school won't let you, or they never have in the past let you play that fifth year.
1: Hi everybody, this is Dan. We originally planned this episode as an all-in-one episode about both Army football and the history of the Army-Navy game. But as you know, as often happens when Andrew and I start talking about sports history, the conversation went a little longer than we'd expected. So we figured instead of cramming everything into one long episode, we'd split things up and turn the Army-Navy part of the conversation into its own episode next week. So tune in next week for episode 10 of the Hello Old Sports podcast as we talk about some of the great moments in the history of the Army-Navy game one of the oldest rivalries in college football. And remember, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hello
0: old sports or email us at hello old sports at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the football history dude, And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month.